Hi there, it's great to be with you again. Feels like it's been a while. Uh, we're in a series called Wisdom for Life, and we've been looking at some of the books in the Bible that focus on how to live wisely. And until now, we've been in the book of Proverbs, which is a book that effectively focuses most of its attention on how you make wise choices in the here and now, in the sort of pragmatic, ordinary issues of everyday life. And today we're going to begin to change from looking at Proverbs to looking at two other wisdom books that approach wisdom in a slightly different way. The books of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. And Proverbs, as we've seen so far, is a book of what I would call micro-wisdom. It's wisdom on the ground in the practical, in the trenches, in the realities of everyday life. It's how do you... Uh, raise children? How do you have a good marriage? How do you make sure friendships are healthy? How do you work hard and well and wisely? How do you use your time? How do you fight anxiety or fear or whatever it is? Very ordinary, real day-to-day issues. But the books of Ecclesiastes and Job, which we're going to start looking at now, are what I'd call macro wisdom. They're like the big picture of wisdom. They're not so much concerned with the individual life decisions you make in one day, but they're very concerned with the huge questions of life and death and meaning and time and eternity and order and chaos and evil and suffering, those sorts of issues. And it's important that we learn to have big picture wisdom as well as, if you like, very ordinary day-to-day wisdom. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes and then the book of Job, which is where we'll finish the series for the last three weeks. And as we do that, we're going to see wisdom framed in a slightly different way. It's not just this is how I do life today, but it's this is how I think about these giant questions that people all have to wrestle with at some point. And Job famously wrestles with the question of suffering and evil. Ecclesiastes is more concerned with questions of meaning in light of the reality of death. And so that's where we're going to start today. And we're going to look at what the the certainty of human death means for the meaning of life. So it's a pretty small subject, right? Now, our culture, by and large, doesn't really engage with that question. You are going to die one day, so am I. What does that mean for the meaning of your life? Death is certain. Death is coming towards you like an oncoming train. That's what the light at the end of the tunnel is. It's coming straight for you. Now, what does that mean for the way you invest your time and your life now? And our culture generally doesn't want to ask that question because... Medical and scientific advances mean that we can live far more comfortably and far longer, actually, than people ever have. So the vast majority of people who've ever lived on this planet lived in more, to be honest, more pain and shorter lives than we do. And that means that we are able to postpone thinking of death until later. And so it depends. You might be really young listening in today. You might be 13, 14. You might be at the other end of the age spectrum. But wherever you are, we still face that impulse to just punt on the issue of death and think, I'll get to that another day. And our society kind of makes that possible through a mixture of science and healthcare and all the rest. We're obsessed with youth as a culture as well. So the way that people talk, the way people dress, the music we listen to, the arts, the magazines we buy, the TV shows, there's a very strong focus on youth culture, even for people who are way too old for it. And that also reflects our society's decision not to think about death that much. If I can think about being very young and act like I am, then maybe I won't think about what's coming. And even when we do confront the reality of death, when people close to us die, as many of us have seen in the last few months, even then we handle the reality of death in a way that it will not impinge too much 
into our normal public lives. So whereas in some societies, a funeral is an occasion for a public gathering, a loud mourning and wailing and an open casket, we do the opposite of that. We say, no, this must be quiet and private and removed from all view. And then as soon as possible, we're back to normal life. And the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't let us off the hook that easily. The book of Ecclesiastes challenges us with the reality that you are going to die one day. And so am I. And what's that going to mean for the things that you think are important in the here and now? What's that going to mean for questions of God and life and eternity and faith? And Ecclesiastes makes us ask those questions. And so we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and then on into chapter 2. And start reading at chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man can't utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that's done unto heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all is vapor and shepherding the wind. What's crooked can't be made straight and what's lacking can't be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly and I perceived that this also is just shepherding the wind for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart come now I'll test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vapor I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vapour and a shepherding the wind. 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vapor. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vapour and shepherding the wind. This is the word of God. Reading Ecclesiastes is like having a cup of cold water thrown in your face, right? It wakes you up. It's not the most pleasant or uplifting experience when you read a text like that, but it wakes you up to the realities of life and death. And the reality which many of us spend a good deal of time and even money trying to avoid on a daily basis, is simply this, that death comes to us all, and that means that all our attempts to find meaning under the sun simply unravel in front of us. Vapour, shepherding the wind, no profit or gain. Now, as human beings, we find that really hard because we long for meaning, right? We need to know that there's a purpose to our lives. It's good. That's a, something God's put in us. We want to know that our lives are meaningful and purposeful, a reason for our existence beyond just accident or happenstance or coincidence or whatever you call it. So what we do is we construct all kinds of meanings for ourselves. We say, I can't live this life unless I know that there's some kind of destiny or some kind of purpose or meaning, and I want to know what that thing is. And so what we do is we construct Meanings which we can then pursue and say the meaning of life is that thing. So it might be family. Right? I've got a lot of people in my extended family that really, if you'd said, we, I, we actually did this survey a few years back on a course I used to run for 18, 19 year olds who just finished school and they did a gap year working for the church. And one of the things we got them to do was to go out at lunchtime and do a survey in the town and just stop people in the street and say, can I ask you, what do you think the most important thing in life is? Especially, what's the meaning of life? But it doesn't sound quite so deep, right? What's the most important thing in life? And when people start ask, answering that question, you quite quickly get the same few answers. I think it's family. I think it's just living for pleasure, just being as happy as you can. I think it, not many people will say it, but people live as if they might think it's wealth. Or they might think it's education. Or a legacy. They might think it's success. Or progress in society. But whatever it is, those things, all of which, which we construct and say, that's the meaning of life for me. All those things can seem meaningful for a while. But the problem is that the reality of our impending death eats away at each of those meanings like an acid. And it makes it harder and harder. When we first see it, we think, yeah, that's great. That'll be my meaning. But over time, the reality of the fact that we're going to die eats away at each of those potential meanings of life and means that none of them are sufficient to make life meaningful or purposeful for us. And that's the reality that Ecclesiastes is trying to put in front of us. And the preacher does this using two key images, which as we look at the book, you'll see they come up again and again. Two key terms that he uses to help us see the, tr the meaninglessness, the, if you like, the transience or the ephemerality, if you want a fancy word for it, of this life. 
And the two words he uses are vapor and then the term shepherding the wind. He says life under the sun is vapor. It's this Hebrew word chabel. It's actually the same word as the name of the second son born to Adam and Eve. Abel or chabel. It means vapor. And Abel is the first man to die in the Bible. He's the here today, gone tomorrow. Like a breath. And the preacher's saying, your life's like that. It's chebel. It is, it's a breath. It's like you step outside on a cold day and you can see it. You know, you, you can see the sort of cloud of your own breath just go out like that. And then within a yard or so, it's dissipated completely and you can't see it. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's transient. It's vaporous. And life, the preacher says, is like that. It's vapor. It's too transient. It's too shallow. It's too temporary to be anything that you can build anything on. And he says it's vapor and then uses this other term that he introduces where he says life is vapor and it is a shepherding of the wind. Uh, during lockdown, me and my family went for walks a lot and where, where I live, I live near the south coast and uh, we, we would go walking on the, on the hills, the south downs. And it gets pretty windy up there. And my son is struggling at the moment with the fact that he can't control the wind. And he genuinely, I'm not saying that as a, as a joke, like he would get quite angry sometimes. He starts shouting and go, stop it, wind, go away, wind. And he just doesn't quite get that that's not something we're empowered to do unless we're Jesus. And so he starts yelling and screaming at the wind. And we had to try and show, see, you can't control the wind. You can't, in Ecclesiastes' language, you can't shepherd the wind. You can't make it where, go where you want to go. An expression we might use today for the same idea is it's like herding cats, right? You just can't do it. But even worse, in Hebrew, you say it's like shepherding the wind. It's like trying to garner up the wind and say, go over there. But it's impossible because the wind is simply going to go where it wants to do. And trying to control it is futile. We might think we're in control, but actually the wind blows where it wants to and it takes no orders from anyone. And Ecclesiastes is saying, your life's like that. Right? You, we kid ourselves that we have a lot of control. I'm going to do this and then this and then this. But actually your life is a vapor and it's like shepherding the wind. It's trying to bring order to something that ultimately is beyond your control. And if anything that we have, of all the things we've learned in the last six months of COVID and lockdown and all the rest, one of the things I trust we have seen, whether we're Christians or not, is that life is far more transient. It's far more difficult to control than we thought. You think you're a house built on a solid rock. You're actually a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. You think you're shaping the world. You're actually shepherding the wind, Ecclesiastes says. Chapter 2, verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. I could be really smart, I could be really dim, and it kind of doesn't matter in a way because at the end of my life, we're all going to end up in the same ground. The same thing happens to us all, at which point some of the big questions I've got about meaning and life come straight in front of me. And I have to ask, what then is the point if I'm going to die and so is everybody else? And that poses a, lot, a huge problem for a lot of the ways in which you and I construct meaning for our lives under the sun. Work. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Right? Wine. 
Chapter two, verses one to three. Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vapor. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. We might look for meaning, not just in work and wine, but in wealth. Chapter two, verses seven to eight. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I might look for meaning in women. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. I kept my heart from no pleasure, he says. Then I considered all my hands had done and all the toil I'd expended in doing it, and it was all vapor and shepherding the wind. And finally, interestingly, he then says, I also look for wisdom. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vapor and shepherding the wind. You see, what the writer's doing is going through all of the ways in which we construct meaning and then say, that doesn't work either. If you're going to die, none of those things actually matter. And humans have often tried to find meaning in the same few things. Money, sex and power are often the big ones. Ecclesiastes adds another two, pleasure seeking and education. But it insists that death means that all of them ultimately are mere vapor. You can work hard and make a lot of money and a lot of people in this city do, but you can't take it with you. You can distract yourself with alcohol and sexual conquests and diverting possessions, and many in this city do. But in the end, you're still confronted by your own mortality. You could be the wisest, smartest person on earth, but it won't make you live any longer. And many people and corporations have a vested interest in obscuring that point. They say, if you do this or think that or buy that, then you will have a meaningful life. To which Ecclesiastes says, bunk! No, you won't! Life is a vapor, it's shepherding the wind, and all of the ways you try to construct meaning are ultimately going to come crashing about your ears and you're going to go into the ground with them. Nearly 25 years ago, I, um, I watched Titanic for the first time. That'll make you feel old if you don't already. Um, but it's an interesting movie because the plot of Titanic is overshadowed by the fact that you know the ship's going to sink. And it changes the way you see all the characters. There's this huge dramatic irony in the movie. Because you're spending the whole movie knowing that the people who you're getting to know are going to be at the bottom of the ocean very shortly. And the ship is full of beautiful people. Uh, sometimes, many of them actually very powerful and rich people. Some of them are pursuing money. Like, do you remember Benjamin Guggenheim? John Jacob Astor? You recognize, if you've seen Titanic, you'll see these, remember these people. Some of them are seeking prestige. They want to finish on a high in their career. They're looking for a swan song like the captain of the ship. They might be looking for a beautiful fiance like Billy Zane's character, Count. They might be looking for a sexual relationship like Jack and Rose. It's, Titanic is like a metaphor for the affluent Western world, saying, look, we're all chasing these things which are going to make us successful or wealthy or happy. But we know what they don't, which is that very soon the ship's going to sink and they're all going to die, or all but almost all of them are going to die. So when we see them pursuing those things and chasing them around the ship and arguing about them over dinner and brandy and cigars or straightening deck chairs or playing violins as the ship's going down, we know those things don't matter. And we want to talk to them and say, no, you're living as if these things are going to bring you, but they're not. You're going to hit an iceberg very soon. Do you remember this guy? Mr. Ismay, do you remember this, this guy? 
Right? When, he, when he turns to the captain, he says, but wouldn't it be wonderful if he could arrive in New York and surprise them all early or what, tomorrow morning? Go out with a bang, A-E-J. Do you remember that guy? And as you're listening to him talking, you want to say, no, tomorrow you're all going to be in the bottom of the ocean. Please wake up and smell the coffee. The morning papers don't matter. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. That's what the preacher in this book wants you to see because there are people in his city and people in ours, millions of us, who are living as if the iceberg of death will never touch us. Making money, drinking, pursuing a fiancé, polishing their legacy, go out with a bang, A-E-J, and all of them, the writer's saying, those things may or may not be okay, they might even sometimes be good, but they're not enough because you're going to hit the iceberg and when you do, this won't matter. You know, it's... One of the most bizarre things is that, that that movie won a clutch of Oscars. Won, I think, 11 Oscars. James Cameron, the director, when he received his Oscar, stands in front of the, however many million of peop- millions of people watch the Oscars. And it was just this weird moment, if you saw it at the time, you'd remember it, where he just stood up with his Oscar and shouted, quoting uh, Jack, Jack's character in the movie, just quoted, I'm the king of the world on the Oscar stage. It was a really cringe-inducing, weird moment. And I just thought, my goodness, James Cameron, you have directed a movie and given years of your life to a movie that is a metaphor for the way that the Western world pursues all of this stuff and then hits the iceberg of death and dies. And you haven't even noticed that's what the movie's about. And you're now standing there saying, there, you see, I've conquered. I've done it. I've got an Oscar. And I was thinking, man, you have somehow missed the point of your own movie because you're going to hit the iceberg as well. And so am I. And so are you. This book says to James Cameron and you and me, your life is a vapour. You're shepherding the wind. There is no gain under the sun. The iceberg of death is coming and you are going to sink along with all your violins and your top hats and your Oscars. And that, as I say, is what COVID has taught us if it has taught us nothing else. That we are not as in control of our lives as we thought. Now, That sounds like a message of total despair, right? And in a way, the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to make that point. It's not the only book in scripture. There's a lot of other things to say. But this book, in large part, is trying to make it clear that you can't look to those things for meaning. But it sounds like despair. If life under the sun is vapor, a shepherding of the wind, then what chance is there of hope? And the answer is, the only chance of hope comes if life under the sun is not all there is. That's the only place you can find hope for Ecclesiastes, right? Life under the sun, which you'll hear that phrase again and again in this book. Life under the sun is vapor, shepherd in the wind. It runs out. You're going to die like everybody else. And there is no meaning to be found there. It's life under the sun is a mist of vapor, which is here for a little while and then it vanishes. But there is another life that is not the life under the sun. And it is a life that is deep and rich and it comes from the man, who, the God who created the sun. And death cannot take it away and it lasts forever. No, there is nothing new under heaven. But what about when heaven breaks in? Behold, I am making all things new. What then? It's only for Ecclesiastes and for scripture as a whole. It's only when you look beyond life under the sun, beyond life under heaven. And only when you look to eternity where God has set the hearts of men and women, that you find a newness that never gets old and a meaning that death cannot take away 
and a life that is indestructible and permanent. So you and I, like Solomon, like James Cameron, we have a choice. Life under the sun in which nothing is new and nothing can be gained and all that is solid melts into air or life in the sun. The Lord Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate and risen on the third day according to to the scriptures and in whom everything is gained and all is made new and the vaporous lives that we live now will be raised indestructible. And that's your choice. You have life under the sun. You have life in the sun. And Ecclesiastes is saying, this is vapor. And the rest of scripture is saying, and go and look to him instead. When life under the sun proves empty, and it will come to the sun and find fullness and eternity and resurrection life and everlasting joy. That's, I think, what Solomon the preacher would say to you if he could see you today. The the things you're looking for now, vapour, shepherding the wind. But there is a life that is not under the sun, a life that is in the sun. And in him, we find not just meaning, but everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of having a resurrected saviour who shows us that in spite of the other areas we might look for meaning, there is something that even death itself cannot take away. There is a meaning to be found in him and his eternal, everlasting kingdom that even the certainty of death will not remove from us. Lord, thank you for hope. Thank you for resurrection, life and hope that can ground us in this life and prepare us for eternity. I pray for my brothers and sisters watching this and for all those, even if we're not believers watching this, that you would help us find hope in the risen son. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.